Hello, Harvest! Well, I am looking forward to the day that uh, I can say, or Pastor Mike can say, uh, welcome if you're watching from Freeport or from Catanning or from Indiana or PVC. And I can't say that this morning. I can't say that this evening. I can't say that anytime because you're watching in your homes. But very soon, we will be back into our buildings. And so I'm going to encourage you uh, to be watching your emails, to be watching uh, the outlets that your campus pastors communicate to you for information on what that opening of our campuses look like. looks like. It's going to be a slow, gradual opening, and uh, some, that information is going to be uh, coming out to us very soon. So please uh, watch your emails and other social media outlets, Facebook, Instagram, however you collect information from Harvest Community Church. The other thing I want to remind you of, and this is something that I uh, reminded my campus about, and by the way, I'm Pastor Michael from the Petroleum Valley Campus. I am delighted to be with you uh, preaching God's word um, in your homes. Um, the milk distribution, we have an opportunity to serve our communities uh, this coming week. Uh, Marburger Dairy is going to be delivering 600 units of milk and other dairy products um, on Tuesday. And I think that each campus pastor is working on locations, working on details on getting that distribution to the people that need it most. I know that I have sent an email to the Petroleum Valley campus and I've heard from just a few folks. Uh, I need to hear from more folks so that we can make sure that we serve the community uh, around the Petroleum Valley campus well. And I know that the other campuses want to uh, serve their campus as well too. So please uh, take a look at your emails and I can't say that enough. Go ahead and open your Bibles to Mark chapter 10. By now you've already heard the passage of scripture read. Uh, we're going to be looking at verses 13 through 16, and if you haven't hit the note tabs, the notes tab on your, uh, your, your computer to download the map, let me encourage you to hit the notes tab and download the map so you can follow along. Uh, you'll be using those, or you, you might need that if your community group is meeting. Uh, and by the way, I do know that there are some community groups that are meeting in person starting this week, uh, which is an exciting thing. So since the passage has already been read, I'm going to jump right in to taking a look at it uh, with, with you today. I don't believe it's an accident that a story about children follows a teaching on marriage and divorce. Uh, could it be that when Jesus holds a high view of the sanctity of marriage, that he also has a high view of the family? I think it's appropriate for us, especially in the culture we live in, where the fabric of our families are being torn apart, that we hear and understand what Jesus has to say about the family. And of course, he has a high view of the family. Of course, he has a high view of marriage and divorce. Of course, he has a high view of children. Our text in Mark chapter 10, verses 13 through 16 is one of two stories really describing two separate but related incidences. The first story, uh, verses 13 through 16, uh, contains Mark's description of Jesus' response to the disciples' attempt to hinder parents bringing their children to Jesus so that he could bless them. And the second story, which Pastor Mike will be preaching on next week, contains the incident of the rich young ruler who came to Jesus to learn what he must do in order to obtain eternal life. Now, you might not think there's a connection between those two stories, that they're just kind of loosely thrown in to 
the gospel narrative, but I do think that there's a clear connection between these two stories because both of them really deal with how to enter into the kingdom of God. There is more than meets the eye here in this passage of scripture, especially verses 13 through 16. You might think that really the whole focus is on children and so it gives us an opportunity to talk about children, children's ministry, families, and those things are there. And they're there by implication. But really, I think the point of the parable is how Jesus compares the coming of these children to him to entrance into the kingdom of God. And we're going to get to that, but I want you to hang with me a few minutes because the first thing we're going to do is get to the implications of this passage for children and family and even children's ministry. So let's look at verse 13. It says, And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them, and the disciples rebuked them. First of all, who is the they in this passage? Uh, if, if, if you and I, and we are 21st century believers, I think the mistake that sometimes we make is we lay over our context uh, over top of the scriptures and it, it allows us or, or it keeps us from seeing what's really going on here. And in our culture, who would most likely be the they that are bringing their children to Jesus? Well, in our culture, it's most likely gonna be women. Because the men are out uh, in their jobs. Ideally, they're in their jobs. They're bringing home the bacon. Uh, unfortunately, a lot of men are disconnected from raising their children. They're disconnected from child rearing in our culture. So naturally, we think dad's out making the, making the bread, mom's at home, staying at home. And this is one of the problems with what feminism has really done to motherhood in our culture today. It's, it's so, it's shameful in my perspective that we have reduced a stay-at-home mom to somehow not being very important. And in my reality is, a stay-at-home mom is the most important thing that you can do in and for your children, with and for your children. It, it, it really is just shameful, sinful, how we have reduced that high calling of motherhood and that high calling of staying at home and, and somehow that you are reduced to insignificance in our culture because you choose to stay at home and raise your children. Uh, bravo, you are a hero of mine. I, I love the fact that my wife, that Elizabeth, stayed home for 10, 12 years, not ignoring any of the gifts that God had given her to teach, uh, to, to be uh, an, an educator, but she recognized that you only have a short period of time to impact your children uh, for eternity. And so she took that opportunity. Uh, but from the way the passage is written in the Greek, the truth is actually very different. It's not a group of moms who are on a play date to see this man called Jesus. What we learn from the way this sentence is phrased is that actually it was the father's. And it wasn't the father's alone. It was the father's, probably families, that brought their children uh, to Jesus to be blessed, to be touched, to be hugged, to be cared for. Now, why is this important? I think it's important in the culture of the day because fathers had the responsibility of taking their children to a rabbi to be blessed and dedicated to God. And I think the same is true today. Fathers are given the responsibility of spiritual leadership in the home. And this is not like Scar in The Lion King who sets himself up as, as the authoritative ruler of the pride lands and he lets the lionesses and the uh, hyenas go and get the food for him and he just sits proudly on his little rock stoop 
declaring his authority and his power. No, to me, spiritual leadership is more about service. Service um, like Jesus would serve his, his disciples. Uh, being the spiritual leader of a home is more like a point man on patrol, uh, the point person who's out in front of his family, who is watching for the, the, the dangers in our culture, who is uh, pointing people to the booby traps on the path of life. And the scriptures are that guide for spiritual leadership. That's what's happening here. And the word bringing isn't just bringing casually, it's this word bringing has to do with bringing a sacrifice to God as a way of dedicating oneself, that sacrifice to God. So that is what, this is an intensely spiritual activity that's going on here. This wasn't parents taking their kids on a day out the same way we might take our children to the mall to see Santa Claus at Christmas. It was parents bringing their children to Jesus so that they could be blessed and dedicated to a life of discipleship. When we put these elements together, the fathers bringing the children to be blessed and the dedication on part of the the dedication on the part of the fathers, we see a very important principle and this is the first point on your map. It is the family that is primarily responsible for the spiritual well-being and growth of their children. Parents Let me encourage you, take your children to Jesus. No one else is given the primary responsibility. Take your children to Jesus. As Moses was getting ready to lead the people, actually not lead the people, he wouldn't lead the people in the promised land because of his sin. As as he was preparing Joshua to lead the second generation of Israelites uh, out of the wilderness into the promised land, he says this in Deuteronomy chapter 6. Verses four through seven. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. And I think from this passage of scripture, we see that really God has ordained two contexts, and and may I I be a little bit uh, creative here, two gardens, if you will, in which he grows children. The home is where kids see the gospel lived out and learn to believe in its power. Our kids will learn to believe the gospel by how we communicate it and how we live it out. Now, I, I don't mean that it's, it's, have, it's just simply about having family devotions. You know, I, I'm going to confess something right now, and I don't feel bad about confessing it. My family never had family devotions. <gasps> oh my, I bet you're all shocked. No, my family never had family devotions. We didn't sit down after, after dinner for 20 minutes and read the scriptures. My kids were off the walls. I couldn't focus them for 20 minutes. But what we did as a family, first and foremost, is my wife and I prayed for our kids every single day. And we started praying for them when we found out that, they, that we were pregnant with them. But we also created an environment in our home that, that wasn't just about... Uh, pulling scripture out of context. It was creating an environment where scripture was the framework of everything we did as a family. 
Everything we talked about, how we disciplined our kids, how we nurtured our children, the context was the, the biblical encouragements, the, the proverbs, the psalms, creating an environment where our kids understood that scripture wasn't just a portion of their life, it was all of their life. It was the context of everything they did, how they dealt with conflict with one another, how they dealt with conflict with friends. And the reality is, is I think that's where the breakdown in some of our homes is is we have parents, we have, we have husbands and wives who aren't equipped to understand the gospel and aren't fluent in gospel literacy and gospel language, so they don't even know how to live their lives according to the gospel. How do you expect your children to live according to the gospel if you don't live according to the gospel principles in the scriptures? We don't, and that's where the breakdown is because our kids will leave our homes, they'll go out into the culture, and they'll be, they'll, they'll be confronted with a circumstance or a situation or a trial, and they won't have the context of faithful parents who work through the very same trial biblically. There's the struggle in our culture today. Do our children see in us the unconditional love? Do they see the graciousness of the gospel, faithfulness, forgiveness, gentleness, that we say God has for them in the gospel? Do we display these things in our home? See, the home is the first place where youth ministry takes place. And it starts, church, by equipping parents to know and live the gospel. Not just, not just give it lip service, but to really apply the truths of the gospel in their lives every single day at their workplaces, in their homes, in their neighborhoods, in conflict at home. Parents, let your children see you fight biblically, please. Let them, help them see that we can fight in a biblical way as adults that, that doesn't do violence to the gospel but actually uh, exalts and elevates the gospel to the place that it's supposed to be in our life. Kids also need someone besides their parents to speak into their lives and to reinforce what's being said in the home. Reggie Joyner, uh, in his book, Parenting Beyond Your Capacity, writes, children need more than just a family that gives them unconditional acceptance and love. They need a tribe that gives them a sense of belonging and significance. Children become like their community. And so I think we need to raise them in a larger community of faith. And what is the larger community of faith for a Christian? It's the church. The church is that larger tribe. The church is that larger group of influencers that we ought to expose our children to, uh, to grow in Christ. I, I, I know that personally in my life, I, certainly my parents were the most significant influencers in my Christian faith. But there were other people who were interested in me as a young man and who were willing to pour themselves into me with, with no strings attached and to disciple me and to mentor me. And I think every one of us ought to be concerned not only for our, the, the biological children we have, but the spiritual children that we have opportunity to impact in the larger tribe of the church. I once heard uh, uh, some statistics about how you help kids produce sticky faith. And what I mean by sticky faith is a faith that transitions from childhood to adulthood. I know that sometimes parents get a little panicky when they, they send their kids out into the world and their kids seem to chuck the faith. 
uh, we hear all these statistics about how many kids are leaving the faith, but the reality is what you don't hear is that a significant portion of those kids who leave the faith return to it eventually after they have an opportunity to allow the experiences of uh, life out from underneath the umbrella of mom and dad in, in a, in, in a Christ, from a Christian perspective. They, they do come back to the foundation, a significant portion come back to the foundation that we provide for them as parents. But three significant things in helping our kids produce sticky faith. The first is parents who model biblical Christianity. And I think I beat that up enough, so I'm not gonna beat it up again. They model, they model biblical Christianity in the way they interact with one another, the way they deal with difficulties and struggles, the way they deal with all of life. Secondly, other non-related adults who have an interest in spiritual growth of children and youth. And I'm gonna add this phrase, without an agenda. And here's been my experience having served as a youth pastor, having served in children's ministry, that all too often there are volunteers who come to children's ministry or youth ministry looking for youth ministry or children's ministry to somehow fill in a gap of identity that they have. If that's your motivation for being involved in children's ministry or youth ministry, I'm gonna encourage you not to get involved until you've answered the identity issues that you're struggling with. You are not gonna find your identity from children and youth. In fact, children and youth are gonna tell you what they think about you, whether you like it or not. And oftentimes, that doesn't pat you on the back. They can sniff out inauthenticity. They can sniff it out. They can sniff it out that you're coming to minister to them because you want something from them as opposed to giving something to them. So minister to children in the church and youth in the church without your own personal agenda. And here's the third one. Multiple spiritual experiences that help children and youth put faith into action. Well, where do they get that? Parents, encourage your children and your youth to be involved in youth ministry and children's ministry. Parents, and facilitate some experiences that help your kids grapple with what faith really is. And, and, and where is that? Put, give, give them opportunities to go on mission trips. Give them opportunities to do outreach and community service. Give them multiple opportunities to put faith into action. Those are the top three of six uh, important things to help kids grow sticky faith. But let me return to our text we see that not everyone was happy with the children coming to Jesus. And amazingly, the people who resented it most were the disciples, those who had spent the longest time with Jesus and who really should have known better. Now they are openly rebuking the parents in a way that would have been both public and embarrassing. Why did, why did they do this? I, sometimes I scratch my head at why the disciples do some of the things they do. And the reality is when I scratch my head, I'm scratching my head not only what the disciples do, but what I do. Sometimes I wonder, well, what am I thinking? It seems to be so clear in the scriptures. Why am I scratching my head as to what Jesus really is getting at here? Whatever their motivation, these followers of Jesus should have known better. I think... Uh, the, one of the reasons I think they resented to having to share their space with children, they wanted to keep Jesus to themselves in a nice, tidy, quiet way. And I, I, I actually think Jesus' frustration with them dealt with the fact that they were conforming to the pattern of the culture. And, and what was the pattern of the culture? The pattern of the culture was that these children were nobodies. In that culture of the day, women and children were really 
They were owned. They were, they were, they were possessions. They didn't have any, any internal dignity or honor. I think that's what Jesus was really irritated about. The disciples had forgotten something Jesus said just a few days before. And we find that recorded in Mark chapter 9. Jesus had taken a child into his arms and he said this, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. And yet, these disciples were rebuking the parents and trying to get rid of the children. In verse 14, we see Jesus' response, but when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, uh, by the way, that word indignant is the same word used when Jesus went into the temple and he cleansed the temple. That's the kind of anger that Jesus uh, had about this situation. And, and remember, Jesus was perfect. He was, sin, he was sinless. This wasn't a sinful anger. This was a righteous anger. I, I think you and I sometimes like to, like, to, like to claim righteous anger, but there's always a danger there because none of us are sinless. None of us have that nature that predisposes us to sin. Jesus didn't have that nature that predisposed him to sin. So Jesus was angry in a way that he wasn't sinful, but he became angry with them because they were misrepresenting his value system. And he says, let the children come to me. Do not hinder them. Those are the two commands that he gives his disciples. One's positive and one negative. Jesus uses the opportunity to proclaim once more to the disciples that he's willing to accept the nothings in society. The ones who have no social status or standing. Those who bring nothing to the table. Seriously, think about your children. What do they bring you? What do they, what do they bring you? They don't bring you anything. In fact, some of you are probably thinking, well, heartache, trouble, frustration. And you know what? Yes, they do. But do they bring anything, anything to your social stand, standing? No. They bring nothing to your social standing. Do they bring anything spiritually to, to your table? No. <laughs> they bring nothing. But Jesus, Jesus really reflects the heart of God towards children and especially those who had no one to take care of them. Listen to what the scriptures say. Exodus 22, 22 to 24, you shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry. And my wrath will burn and I will kill you with the sword and your wives shall become widows and your children fatherless. God is serious about caring for children, especially the fatherless ones. Deuteronomy chapter 10, verses 17 and 18. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who is not partial and takes no bribe. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. And of course, in the New Testament, James chapter 1, verse 27, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Jesus cares for children, and especially those who have no one to care for them. And if he cares for children, shouldn't we? Aren't we to be like our master and our savior? Which leads me to our second point in the map. The church must serve as an advocate for families, and especially for children. 
Let me take just a moment to give you some troubling statistics on children. If you leave out miscarriages and the genocide of abortion, the statistics are painful in and of themselves. 14 million children die each year before the age of five. Now of these 14 million, about 10 million die from five preventable conditions. About 5 million die from diarrhea. I know we don't like to use that word uh, in public, but they die of diarrhea. About 3 million from measles, tetanus, and whooping cough. And about 2 million from respiratory infections, mainly pneumonia. Now most of these could be saved by simple oral rehydration therapies for diarrhea. Just give them clean water and that will help. A $5 injection for measles, tetanus, and whooping cough, and a 50-cent antibiotic for the respiratory problems. But of course, the vast majority of these 14 million children are among the desperately poor, far from the medical blessings that we take for granted. Now, would you believe that America is one of the most violent countries in the world against children? Not only do we kill a million preborn children a year, but one in five children in America live in poverty. One in five. One in four of girls under 18 will be sexually abused by someone they know. And possibly as high as 30% of all mental handicap may be linked to fetal alcohol syndrome. And one study of 36 hospitals showed that in 10% of pregnancies, the mothers used illegal drugs during pregnancy. 89% of school teachers surveyed report that abuse and neglect of children are a problem in their schools. See, the American home is increasingly an unsafe place for children to be, but there's no better place. There's no better place. Do you show kindness to the children you encounter in your neighborhood? In your home? The kids, you're, the children your friends bring into your home? Are you generous and gracious to them when they come into your home? How about the church? What can you do to help the children who are sick and needy? Let's go back to the church for a moment. This really, this, this frustrates me sometimes. I think sometimes the, the most tired people in the church are the children's workers. Why? Because they can't find enough volunteers. They plead. We plead here at Harvest to, to encourage everybody. In fact, I think every adult, every human being in the church ought to be involved somewhere, somehow in children's ministry. And maybe that's praying for the children's ministers. Maybe it's signing up to sit with someone in the nursery Maybe it's signing up to be a helper or an aide down in the children's ministry. If you don't feel you have the gift to teach children, that's fine. Maybe you can just come and provide snacks for someone in the children's ministry. I hate this attitude from adults, especially older adults, sorry, don't mean to point this out to you, who think, I've raised my kids, I'm done. I'm gonna sit back and relax. No, we all have responsibility. In fact, when we bring children into this church for dedication, you make a promise to support these families to raise and nurture their children. And the children's ministry, Harvest Kids and all four campuses is a very real way in which you can come alongside every family in this church. And so I, I think it's time that we flood our children's ministry with more volunteers they can handle. 
Because really, if, if, if kids are not given an opportunity to be the church today, they won't be the church tomorrow. They won't be in here tomorrow. If we want to reflect the heart of Jesus in our church, we need to constantly be striving to find new and creative ways to encourage children to come to him. We must be constantly striving to dismantle barriers that prevent them from finding Jesus. Verses 14 and 15, the latter part. For to such belongs the kingdom of God. Now, this is where I move from the implications of this passage to us for our families and to our children to really the point of what Jesus is getting at. In verse 15, he says, Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. So what are the characteristics of a child that model what we need to be in order to enter the kingdom of God? Jesus did not say that we had to become children, but rather we must become childlike in some way in order to enter the kingdom of God. The question that we must answer then is in what sense must we become childlike in order to enter the kingdom of God? I think there are two answers that I hear most frequently Uh, but I I think really fall short of the biblical teaching here. The first childlike characteristic is that of humility. Okay, (laughs) parents, (laughs) maybe you can answer this better than I can. Are children humble? No, no, children are not humble. Children are sinners, Children are conceived in sin. That's what the scripture record says. Romans 5 verse 12 says this, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned? All sinned. That means every human being conceived and born in this world comes into this world with a predisposition to sin. See, committing sin does not make us a sinner. There isn't this period of time in which there's this innocent little, pe- little ball of flesh and until that little ball of flesh actually does something in disobedience, then they become a sinner. No, they start out a sinner. Right from the get-go. Right from conception. Now, I know that for some of you that thought is problematic. And we can talk about it later. Please email me, call me. We can talk about it later. But the reality is, Proverbs speak often of the foolishness and the wayward way of the child which necessitates correction and warning. Proverbs 22 verse 15 says, Folly is bound up in the heart of a child. A child is not naturally humble. In fact, children from the very beginning are demanding. They expect our attention now. I have two such children, and I know I'm probably going to call them out, but Claire, I'm, I'm convinced that one of the reasons Claire has, has a great singing voice is because she worked out those lungs very early on in her life. Claire, if you weren't looking at her, if your face was not engaging with her, if your eyes were not connected with her eyes, her response was to scream. Now let me give you a scenario. Elizabeth traveled a lot. When I was doing youth ministry, she traveled from Maryland to Pennsylvania. As soon as you put Claire in the car seat, now 
20 plus years ago, 25, 26 years ago, they didn't have the 27,000 mirrors that you could put in a car so that a mom could look to the left or the right and see the face of their child and the child could see the face of their mom. When Elizabeth put Claire in the car seat, she screamed bloody murder, whether the trip was a half an hour or whether the trip was five hours. In fact, there were times when we were together that Elizabeth would climb over the front seat so she could sit next to Claire in her car seat and look at her. That's not humility. And then we have Eli, who, if you watch Family Guy, uh, Eli was kind of like Stewie as a, as a little kid. Mom, mama, mom, mama, mom, mama, mom. And, and if Elizabeth or I were talking to somebody, we were engaging in a conversation with somebody, Eli would interrupt and he would grab our faces and turn our faces towards him so that he could talk to us and get our attention. That's not humility. That is not humility. The second virtue of a child, according to many, is that of faith. We're told that children are naturally trusting by nature. I think for children, though, and I think Proverbs would would support this, I don't, think, I don't think trust is the same as being gullible. How many, and I fell for this as a child, my grandfather used to put his fingers up to my nose and he'd pull and he'd put his thumb in between his two fingers and you know what I would do? I would get so upset because I actually believed that my grandfather had my nose between his two fingers. Is that trusting? No, that's gullible. And then he would throw it, pretend he was throwing in his mouth and he'd move his tongue around so that his tongue would stick out the side of his, of his cheek and I thought that was my nose that he was rolling around in his mouth. Now I know some of us adults, we fall for this pull my finger thing. I would say you're gullible, not trusting. And kids fall for that all the time. That's not trusting. So, so I don't see receiving the kingdom of God as a child to be referring to humility or faith. I believe that childlike characteristics Jesus is referring to here that, and that fit the context when you think about the next story of the rich young ruler are helplessness and dependence. Helplessness and dependence. We must come to Christ with a realization of our helplessness. And if we would come to Jesus for a blessing, we must not come on our own strength. We can't come on our own understanding or wisdom or good works. We can only come to Christ in our helplessness, looking to him and to his grace alone. Which, if you have your map, is really our third map point, and it's a longer one, so bear with me as I read it. The thing which commends children to Christ in their helplessness, not their goodness, I'm sorry, the thing which commends children to Christ is their helplessness, not their goodness. And this is precisely what must characterize every person who comes into the kingdom. They come as those who are helpless and undeserving, entering into his blessings because of God's goodness and grace, not due to their own merits. We must all also come with a realization of our dependence. From helplessness comes the need to depend upon one who is able and the dependence is, this dependence is what Jesus referred to in the Sermon on the Mount when he says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. There are two words in the New Testament for poor. 
The first word refers to someone who was barely able to maintain a living from their wages, but they were barely able to maintain a living from their wages. The second word refers to someone reduced to begging for a living, most often connected with being handicapped or blind or deaf. They couldn't function in society and had to plead for grace and mercy from others. They had no resources in and of themselves. See, the person who is blessed in Matthew chapter five, verse three, is the person who is the second word for poor, absolutely incapable of improving his condition, totally dependent on others. A person who is poor in spirit has no sense of self-sufficiency. And that's a hard thing for us as Americans because we are, of all people in this world, take pride in our self-sufficiency. Romans chapter three, verses 10 through 12 says, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Paul is talking about us. He's talking about uh, our spiritual condition. We have no assets. We have nothing that we can turn over as partial payment for our debts. Mankind owes God a debt that he has no means whatsoever to pay. Man, every man and woman is spiritually bankrupt. And that's why we don't like the cross. Because the cross of Jesus Christ is a declaration of our bankruptcy. is a declaration that we can't pay our bills. In the business world, there are two options. There's chapter seven and there's chapter 11, bankruptcy. And I think oftentimes, we look at our spiritual condition as chapter 11. And chapter 11 bankruptcy is temporary bankruptcy. Chapter 11 gives us an option to uh, take time to work through our financial problems, to, to take time to pay off our debts, to work ourselves back into a position of good standing without the lawyers hounding us and without our creditors taking everything we have. That's chapter 11. Chapter seven is for the person or the company that has reached the end of their financial rope. No more options. See, chapter seven is actually what Paul's talking about in the scriptures. We have no assets. We've got nothing. And here's the beauty of the gospel, plain and clear. And it's found in Colossians chapter two, verses 13 and 14. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. But wait a minute. I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm to declare chapter 11 in that passage. Is Paul saying that we're partially dead? Is Paul saying that we're partially uh, unable to deal with our spiritual condition? No, Paul says you were dead in your trespasses in the uncircumcision of your flesh. Dead. Chapter seven, no assets, nothing to offer. God made a... God made alive together with him, with Christ, having forgiven us all our trespasses. And here it is. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. No one can enter the kingdom of God on the basis of what we've done. We're dead. Poverty of spirit is the only way in, acknowledging and recognizing that we are spiritually bankrupt and as long as you are not poor in spirit, you can't enter the kingdom of God because you're still depending on your own abilities and your own strength to do it. You can't even experience grace. 
because you think there still is room in this town for Jesus and me. You can't become a Christian unless you realize your bankruptcy and are totally dependent on Christ. Helplessness and dependence, two essential characteristics of any who would follow Jesus. You know where self-reliance ultimately ends? Self-reliance ultimately ends in defeat because there's only two possible outcomes for self. You can either deny yourself In Matthew 16, verse 24, you can deny yourself as you hand over control of your life to Jesus Christ, or you can wait until you face Jesus on judgment day and discover that self did nothing to provide for your eternal well-being. What's your choice? What are the options? To me, the second option isn't an option. It's a death sentence. Surrender. Get rid of that self-sufficiency that you're hanging on so desperately for. It's keeping you from the kingdom. It's keeping you from an abundant life because it's not resting and abiding in Jesus. See, you need the cross of Christ and the blood of Jesus to wash away your sins and you need the power of the Holy Spirit to convert your soul through repentance and faith and you know you don't have to be in a church building to acknowledge that. You don't have to be in a church building to drop to your knees and surrender. And so if you've never surrendered your life to Jesus, do so in your living room. Do so sitting on your couch. Do so sitting with family and friends in the privacy of your home. Jesus is ready to receive you like a child. John Calvin said, for men have no taste for it. He's saying God's power. Men have no taste for it till they are convinced of their need for it. And they immediately forget its value unless they are continually reminded by awareness of their own weakness. And what does the Apostle Paul say in 2 Corinthians 12.10? For the sake of Christ then, I am content with weaknesses insults, hardships, persecutions, calamities, for when I am weak, then I am strong. And the reality is, is we hate our weaknesses. But Paul took pleasure in them. We we run from our weaknesses, and Paul took pleasure in them. Why? Because they were opportunities for him to trust the all-sufficiency of God's grace. Rejoice in your weaknesses, Christian. Rejoice in those things that cause you every single day to turn to your Savior. I sat on a Zoom call last night with Ray Gilmore who's struggling with with lung cancer. And I know he's not gonna be disappointed that I've said this. And he said, you know what came out of his mouth? I'm thankful for this test. I'm thankful for this test because it is throwing me into Jesus and onto Jesus for dependence. And so I'm gonna boast in my weakness. I'm gonna boast in this hardship. Pray for Ray as he's walking through this difficulty with family and friends. He's surrounded by a great church that loves him. Keep up that good work. Think about your own life. When things are going well and you're having no problems in your life, how much are you dependent on God? That's the sad thing. Let me, let me put it this way. When do you find yourself praying most? When things are going well? or when you're in the midst of a difficult situation. And I want you to pray when you're in the midst of a difficult situation. But I also want you to remember to pray when, when things are good. Paul learned to be content in whatever situation he was, whether it was plenty or whether it was in want. 
Are you content in those weaknesses that God has given you, that thorn in your side that throws you into the Father and to the Father for that place of dependence? See, I think the characteristic that Jesus wants the disciples and us to learn from these children is that of helplessness and dependence. See, the issue is one of dependence over self-reliance. The kingdom of God belongs to those who depend on God rather than those who are self-reliant. That's the point of this passage today. That's the point of this story. And again, I said earlier that Pastor Mike is gonna unfold uh, the next story about the rich young ruler and it's gonna lead us to very much the same way. But I'm gonna end with Mark chapter 10, verse 16. And he took them in his arms and he blessed them, laying his hands on them. You know, when Jesus was with his disciples in the upper room, he was, that upper room discourse before he went to the cross, he said these words that I, I, I repeat over and over in my head every day, apart from me, you can do nothing. Apart from you, you can do nothing. What's that a declaration of? It's certainly the dec- a declaration of the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. It's certainly a declaration that, that all we need in our lives is a is Jesus. And that doesn't mean that we stick our head in the sand uh, and avoid everything else in the world. No, it, it just means that there, we, can, we don't need anything else uh, to, to enter the grace of God and to experience the grace of God. We need a relationship with Jesus Christ. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you want to be blessed by Jesus like these children were blessed by Jesus, come helpless and dependent. So I want to pray for you right now. I encouraged you and challenged you that if you're at home, and I know you are, or maybe you're at, in, in a friend's house and you're worshiping in a smaller group, uh, 25 or less, uh, with this, this yellow phase that we're in right now, uh, you can kneel right where you're at. You can, you can sit in your chair and you can bow, bow your head and your heart. But I don't want to lead you in a prayer. I want to lead you in a prayer of surrender because that's the posture that's gonna receive the blessing and grace of the Father, the posture of a child that brings nothing to the Savior. So let's pray. Father God, I lift up my brothers and sisters wherever they are right now. And Father, I pray that not only would we as families and a church recognize the important place that we have in the lives of children, the important place to give them a nurturing context as, as a home and a church. Uh, but Father, we would remember really the point of this passage is that we need to come like children. We need to come with childlike characteristics of helplessness and dependence. And so Father, I pray for Christian and non-Christian alike right now that they would repent of their self-sufficiency. They would repent of their self-reliance and Father, particularly for those who don't have a relationship with you, they're, they're looking to their own merits. They're looking to their own successes. They're looking to perhaps worldly gain to give them a leg up in the kingdom of God. Help them to remember that, that they are spiritually bankrupt and that Jesus Christ is the only one who can bring them in 
and to bless them. Father, I pray that they would just turn and very simply say to you this morning, I surrender. That they would say wherever they're seated today, I surrender my life to you in childlike helplessness and reliance and dependence. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Harvest Community Church. We invite you to join us at any one of our four campuses located in Catanning, Petrolia Valley, Indiana, and Freeport. For more information, check us out on the web at harvestpa.org.